The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now on Bloomberg 99.1. With divided government, what are the political realities? The president is increasingly frustrated. I want to try to cut through the noise. Politically, this is devastating. Sound on with Kevin Cirilli. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. It is no secret that I care a lot about the consumers. There are real questions about big tech. We still have more leverage to use with the tariffs. I think we could do with a little less drama from the White House. This is Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99. 1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. Good evening. Happy Friday Eve. We are almost there, and tonight we are awaiting the sentencing for Paul Manafort, who currently is awaiting his sentence. Uh, for more information, uh, in an Alexandria courthouse, we will bring that news to you as it happens, if it happens during the next hour. Big day for Paul Manafort. Also a big day up on Capitol Hill, a bevy of hearings, including Equifax and Marriott CEOs testifying in the Senate about data breaches. We'll have the latest report on that, plus the ongoing scandal involving Congresswoman Ilan Omar, the Democratic freshman from Minnesota, regarding her anti-Semitic tweets. Plus, we've got an all-star panel joining us for the hour. Colin Reed is a Republican strategist and managing director at Definers Public Affairs. And Adam Green is co-founder of the Progressive Change Campaign Committee. He's going to give us his take on the crowded 2020 Democratic field. It is really a remarkable day today because we are awaiting that sentencing from Paul Manafort, uh, President Trump's former campaign chairman. He's uh, getting sentenced, could be sentenced to more than 20 years, folks, for his uh, crimes that he that he has committed. Uh, what's really interesting is, number one, how much is he going to get? But just the news flow surrounding all of these investigations and putting all of these different pieces of the puzzle together. Obviously, this is all going to keep going until we get the Mueller investigation. And whether or not that's made public, we still don't know. Meanwhile, Michael Cohen was back up on Capitol Hill this week. We were uh, covering that all week as well, following his captivating testimony, riveting public spectacle display last week when he testified uh, publicly. So it is judgment day for Paul Manafort. Uh, And meanwhile, everybody wants to know if President Trump would pardon Paul Manafort because, you know, he he hasn't said one way or the other definitively whether or not he would do that. That's that's one of the questions circulating today. Uh, And Michael Cohen was actually asked about this and he discussed a possible pardon with President Trump's legal team. Uh, Here's what uh, Michael Cohen told ABC News. Uh, Let's play for him in terms of whether or not President Trump asked or whether Michael Cohen asked President Trump, rather, for a pardon. Here's Michael Cohen. And I have never asked for, nor would I accept, a pardon from President Trump. 
So that's Michael Cohen. Of course, he's one of those convicted uh, for lying under oath. Uh, he is now finding himself once again in the middle of everything. Paul Manafort's about to get sentenced any minute now. Adam Green is co-founder of the Progressive Change Campaign Committee. He's sitting here in studio with a war, hashtag Warren Wing pin on his lapel. Thank you very much, Adam, for coming in. Yes. It's always a pleasure. Good to be here. Uh, so President Trump, should he pardon Paul Manafort? Would that – how would that How would that go over? Well, right? Just kidding. <laughs> um, I appreciate softball questions. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, no. Uh, it would work on a couple levels to his detriment. One, it would probably spark impeachment talk you know, times 20. Uh, and two, the Southern District of New York um, – or even state, actually the state of New York and other state authorities could just rearrest and retry Paul Manafort. So probably wouldn't keep him out of jail, would have him talking more in a courtroom about Trump and possibly get Trump booted from office. So, Colin Reid, Republican strategist, I mean, jump in here. Do you think the president, it would be smart for him to pardon someone like Paul Manafort? Uh, politically, probably not. And I think we're going to see what happens in a few minutes, probably during the course of this hour, about Paul Manafort's uh, sentencing. Uh, but look, Paul Manafort was not someone who was allowed at the table of Republican politics for decades, and there's a reason why, um, because of stuff like this. And then Donald Trump came along in 2015 and 2016, and a lot of people didn't want to work for him, and he has people like him who, who were uh, attracted to his campaign, and now we're seeing the results. But to me, all of this is uh, – a lot of this noise, I think, will get some answers when the Mueller report comes out. We don't know when. Um, I think they're, they're, it should become public to the degree it can because sunlight is the best disinfectant, and having a full understanding of what happened in the 2016 campaign will allow Congress and the American people to move on. Colin Reed is a Republican strategist. Adam Green is a Democratic uh, strategist, as well as co-founder of the Progressive Change Campaign Committee. Paul Manafort awaiting sentencing, as it, we are expecting that this began at about 3.30 this afternoon. He's over in an Alexandria courthouse. Remember, folks, he was prosecuted in two federal courts, but it was in the Eastern District of Virginia, i.e. Alexandria, last August when he was convicted on eight charges of tax and bank fraud. Now he could face as much as uh, 70 uh, or I'm sorry, 26 years, facing 26 years in jail time. He is 69 years old. We're talking about presidential pardons because President Trump has really not definitively said one way or the other whether or not he would pardon someone like Paul Manafort, but he has spoken somewhat sympathetically of him, not so for Michael Cohen, his longtime personal fixer and uh, political operative. And Cohen is saying, according to uh, a story earlier this week on the Bloomberg Terminal by my colleagues uh, Shaheen Nasirpour and Shannon Pettypiece, that he had expressed interest in a pardon from the president in the months after federal investigators raided Michael Cohen's home and office uh, last April. So talk about a remarkable flip at him from from wanting to pursue a presidential pardon and then all of a sudden now just going to complete political war against this White House. Why does Michael Cohen matter in your perspective? Well, on a couple levels. I mean, for those who are following the fortunes of NBC, he's great for Saturday Night Live. <laughs> um, that's probably Very his biggest true. value. Yeah, I would right agree. Yeah. No, but he, he, is, he is the gateway to everything Trump. He has the insider information. He was trusted for a decade with all the inner secrets. He knows 
every backroom deal that we are not even aware of yet that was sleazy and corrupt and illegal. So that's why that's why he matters. And, you know, his credibility is being impeached by Republicans. But their main problem is that he lied by saying Trump was a good person who didn't break the law. Yep. <laughs> that's that's a little bit of a, a, a structural flaw in their argument. And my, my guess is that Michael Cohen will accidentally become a very historic figure, possibly responsible for Donald Trump being His a half a term president. His book – actually, the, the unpublished book is, I think, the, the manuscript everybody wants to read. But now he's saying he didn't have it. But uh, President Trump tweeting about that, almost toying with him. In that sense, uh, I want to play for you what Senator Tim Sk- Tim Kaine said. He's a Democrat from Virginia talking about presidential pardons and whether or not that's a smart idea. Here's Senator Kaine. If you start to see this president use pardon power for people who are connected with this investigation, I think you'll see Congress erupt. That was Senator Tim Kaine. We're talking presidential pardons with Adam Green, co-founder of the Progressive Change Campaign Committee, also probably one of the most plugged-in people to the Warren wing of the Democratic Party. We'll get his take on the 2020 field, uh, as well as Sochi Inahosa. She's going to call in. She's communications director for the Democratic National Committee. Colin Reed, a Republican strategist and managing director at Definer's public affair he uh he was the campaign manager for scott brown so adam adam and uh adam and colin together in studio for the hour coming up we dive into policy big policy on data breach front uh as well as tim apple or tim cook did you guys follow this i'll I'll catch you up to speed on that remember you can download the sound on uh podcast on apple itunes you can also get it at bloomberg.com or by downloading the bloomberg business app uh you can also find us on radio.com and iHeartRadio. i'm kevin cirilli you're listening to bloomberg 99.1 you're listening to sound on with kevin cirilli on bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 fm hd2 baltimore we are on high alert today on Sound On for Paul Manafort, who is awaiting sentencing in an Alexandria courthouse. We will bring you that news live as it happens. He was uh, convicted on eight counts, remember, eight counts in connection with tax fraud and uh, really just poor financial dealings. He could get up to 26 years in prison. He's 69 years old, so that would likely be a life sentence. We're also monitoring all of the policy wonk news of the day. And there was a lot of it, folks. The CEOs of Marriott and Equifax were testifying before a Senate subcommittee on Capitol Hill earlier today. I actually spoke with one of the leading Democrats on who uh, who on this subcommittee who released a report on Thursday on Equifax's breach uh, and, and really examining just a complete breakdown of senior executives when the personal data breach, 143 million people, 143 million people had their data breached when this uh, occurred a few years back in 2017. Adam Green is co-founder of the Progressive Change Campaign Committee, uh, very closely aligned with Senator Elizabeth Warren, uh, the 2020 presidential candidate. A Democrat from Massachusetts. Colin Reed, Republican strategist and managing director at Definer's Public Affair. He was also the campaign manager on Scott Brown. Remember Scott Brown? He she, he ran against uh, Senator Warren back in Massachusetts. And that was Senator Warren's first political campaign. No, Adam? That was. It was her first because she was plucked from Harvard, a Harvard classroom. 
Elizabeth Warren was plucked from Oklahoma, where she grew up <laughs> in a very poor family, on the ragged edge of the middle class. And then she eventually, after a lot of hard work, taught at Rutgers University in my home state. Jersey. Place, actually went to, yeah, she went to Rutgers. I uh, was a teacher for many years and eventually wound up at Harvard. All right, we're going to get more into Warren World coming up because we have a lot to catch up on. Uh, but but this Equifax, she's been huge on Equifax. She's been one of the, I would argue, the, the leading Democratic voice uh, on this Equifax issue, hammering them for for their data breach. A lot of folks associate Senator Warren with, Walt, with uh, criticizing large financial institutions. But Equifax and data breach and cybersecurity, she's really emerged, uh, I would argue, as the leading voice on the left on the Equifax issue. Yeah, and this is definitely an issue that unites Republicans, Democrats, yes. and independents, right? Millions of people's social security numbers and other data were just put out there in, in the public because of corporate irresponsibility. Elizabeth Warren is actually, I was at her first Iowa campaign event in uh, January, and she made history as being the first presidential ca- candidate ever to actively name Equifax in the campaign event. Wow. <laughs> and yeah, and you know, Iowa voters were not happy about Equifax. Yeah. I will say her protege, uh, now Congresswoman Katie Porter also has been hammering away in the House and had the, the CEO of Equifax this past week uh, in front of them. And she said, sir, would you please tell everybody your birthday and your Social Security number? <laughs> and he's like, no. And she was like, well, why is that? And he's like, well, that would cause, cause harm to me. And she, she's like, well, why are your lawyers arguing in court? Yeah. That it will co- not cause harm to millions of Americans, and he didn't really have an answer for that. It's a, it is quite remarkable. And I do want to say I interviewed Senator Tom Carper today, uh, a centrist Democrat from Delaware. He's, one of the, he's the top Democrat on the subcommittee that, that had this hearing today. And he did say that while more work has to be done at Equifax and at Marriott, that the new leadership that has been brought in at Equifax has been moving in the right direction. Colin, uh, you advise businesses. Uh, you work, in the, work with the private sector to help navigate some of these headline risk type of uh, situations. And I, and I asked Senator Carper that, particularly from a policy standpoint. How do these companies who are getting hacked just like the government is getting hacked, how do they navigate sort of these political tailwinds and headline risk? Because if, if it comes out that you got hacked, we see this in stock prices, the volatility. And Senator Carper said, well, there has to be a good meeting of the minds between the private sector as well as the government so that they don't feel that when they do get hacked or they do have a cyber breach, that they're going to get, you know, massive plummet in their, in their uh, shareholder value. An interesting phenomenon these days, especially with so many senators running for president, is it's, it's no longer just a policy issue that becomes a political issue, particularly with these hearings and these subcommittees, and people can use them as good sound bites on the trail, and each uh, candidate will want to outflank one another, and in this era of uh, pitchfork populism, it can be tough to be these uh, companies, particularly when you have uh, policy challenges like that. So there's the old saying that good policy equals good politics, and uh, the reverse of that is bad policy equals bad politics. We're sticking with tech. We're going to stick with tech because did you guys see this? Elon Musk's secret clearance is said to get Pentagon review over his marijuana use. You can't make this up. Bloomberg News exclusive by my colleague Tony Capaccio. Tony Capaccio, my gosh, I can't read. Tony Capaccio's Bloomberg scoop. You got to hear this. Elon Musk, remember he went on that radio show? Not sound on, folks. He was not on sound on smoking marijuana. But he went on a radio show. He was smoking marijuana. And now the Pentagon is reviewing Elon Musk's Federal security clearance following the billionaire's marijuana usage on a California comedia's podcast, not podcast, podcast in September. This is remarkable. He's obviously, you know, formerly with SpaceX uh, 
and he's the founder of, uh, of SpaceX. But really remarkable to see Elon Musk, arguably one of the most recognizable now American uh, business entrepreneurs, to really be whacked by this. There may be 3,000 miles between here and California, but the, the, the divide is getting much closer. And these companies and these individuals who have these extremely successful ideas and innovations and companies in California are, are quickly realizing that the regulations and the rules uh, that apply to others are apply to them too. And that chasm is closing, and it's an uh, interesting t- dynamic to watch, particularly as, as um, you know, the, the, again, back to the populism out there, uh, these, these, these companies and executives find themselves under the same sort of strain that other people do. Yeah, well, I would agree with Colin on the idea that we need... Wait, to- wait, 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 wait. You agree with Colin? Oh, wait. Is this Mike live? <laughs> well, wow. I thought, I thought you guys, I did it. Break. I don't What's even know what here? you're going to say. I don't even know what you're going to say, but I did it. I found a point of agreement. Go you're ahead, Adam. You know, we, we, we need equal enforcement of, of laws and rules for everybody, and there are so many people in prison right now. Uh, for things like marijuana that obviously Elon Musk should face some accountability. That being said, everybody, you know, he, this is not the thing that should take someone's clearance away or the thing that should jail people for, for years. It's, am, it's time for re- big picture reform in this country. I am fascinated by that, Elon, by, by Elon Musk. I think he's going to be around for quite some time. And just uh, on our way out, because Apple's Tim Cook, did, did you hear this when President Trump called him Tim Apple? Now Tim Cook has changed his Twitter bio to Tim Apple and Ivanka Trump tweeted out question mark, question mark, question mark, referring to Tim Cook now referred to as Tim Apple. We're still on Manafort watch. How long will he be sentenced for? We are awaiting word from an Alexandria courthouse. Uh, Coming up, we're going to hear from Sochi Inohosa. She's communications director for the Democratic National Committee. She's going to catch us up to speed on all of the debate prep that is going on for a very crowded Democratic presidential primary. Remember, folks, you can download the Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes. You can also go to Bloomberg.com or get the Bloomberg business app, and you can find us on Radio.com and iHeartRadio. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. I couldn't uh, comment on that for a couple of reasons. One, uh, some of the security clearance is, is uh, something that I, I can't talk about or reveal. And two, conversations with the president at that level certainly would be covered by privilege. That was retired General John Kelly, the president's previous chief of staff, speaking publicly for the first time since resigning as President Trump's chief of staff. He was at uh, Duke University uh, the other day, and this is following a report in the New York Times that says President Trump pressured General Kelly to provide security clearances to Ivanka and Jared, Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner. Uh, it's It's... It's timely because of this Bloomberg News exclusive by Tony Capaccio, which says that Elon Musk's secret clearance 
his federal security clearance is set to be under review following his usage of marijuana. Adam Green is co-founder of the Progressive Change Campaign Committee. Colin Reed is a Republican strategist. I'm trying to find areas in which they agree because they butt heads on policy. But, Colin, I mean, is it a bit – I mean, it is – what do you make of this, Jared and Ivanka getting security clearances and, you know, General Kelly kind of giving some ambiguity following the New York Times report that they were pre- that he was pressured to do so by President Trump? I think overall it's an unhelpful narrative uh, for the White House. It's probably an area of agreement uh, here we found. Um, but I don't know that it's going to – at the end of the day, there's a lot of noise right now and there's a lot of other things happening that you just referenced. So I, I don't know that it will stick around forever, but – uh, when you have all these former staffers out there giving public speeches, their words are going to be parsed very carefully, and anything that can be used to highlight and elevate disagreements with the administration will blow up. So uh, when you've got a lot of people coming in and out of the White House, I think it's uh, this is a byproduct of that. Do you think Jared and Ivanka should have had a national security clearance? I don't know. I'm not a yeah. – I don't issue I – don't, I don't, not a topic of uh, expertise for me. Adam? So because there's so much noise, it's important to connect the dots by boiling it down, boiling down to one word, which is corruption, right? Whether it's giant tax cuts for Wall Street and other lobbyists that, you know, specifically lobby for things in the tax code or hurting our national security by, by randomly giving compromised uh, Jared Kushner top security clearance, the common theme in this White House is corruption. That happens to be something that Elizabeth Warren has boiled down her campaign to as well. And but but in terms of but in terms of security clearances, because I mean, because now you've got this bombshell report, Bloomberg exclusive, that Elon Musk could have his security clearance revoked, and the Pentagon's reviewing it. I mean, Jared and Ivanka have a security clearance. Do you think that that they deserve Adam to have a, a security clearance, especially if the president is is personally advocating? On the one hand, when I talk to Republicans, they say absolutely, the president should be able to say whomever he wants at the national security table and draw advice from. On the other hand, I would take it you disagree with that argument. Well, let's look at the rationale for them being denied a security clearance. I mean, the, is bottom by, the bottom line here is that they are compromised. Right? The fact that Jared Kushner is meeting with Russians might be working against the interests of the United States. The fact that the national security apparatus says, hey, we don't want him to be privy to top national security information, it, you know, that everybody should fear if the president is overriding that decision by the national security apparatus. All right, so we're talking right? – It fits into corruption. So we're talking about uh, some of the messaging and the national security clearances that uh, are dividing the administration. But meanwhile, there's all of this chatter. We've been talking about it all week. It, it really is, folks, I got to be honest, uncomfortable to talk about because some of these tweets coming from the freshman congresswoman from Minnesota, Congresswoman Ilan Omar, are, are just absolutely anti-Semitic. And now you've got a situation where Democrats on the House are trying to rebuke this and uh, – are facing a lot of criticism, not just from the right, but also from Democrats. And it's presented this challenge for Speaker Pelosi. I would argue that this is her first challenge. She's she's more having to deal with this freshman congresswoman's anti-Semitic remarks, but she totally handled the White House uh, in terms of navigating the issue of uh, – of uh, the, the, the government shutdown. I want to play for you, Adam, what Speaker Pelosi said when asked about Congresswoman Omar anti-Semitic tweets, and then I want to get your take. Here's Speaker Pelosi. I feel confident that her words were not based on any anti-Semitic attitude, but that 
she didn't have a full appreciation of how they landed on other people where this, these words have a history and a cultural impact that may have been unknown to her. Adam, is that is? What do you make of her response? Well, first, I would take issue with the idea that she her actions are quote absolutely anti-Semitic. Her original comments that got criticism were about APAC, wit, and basically we have big money interests ranging from Wall Street to the NRA to Big Pharma to Big Oil, where it's fair game to talk about their influence on our political system because of their money. But if you say that our foreign policy is being skewed by APAC. And that they, you know, by their own admission, they exert great influence and they direct dollars to politicians. Somehow that's anti-Semitic. That's, that's a little bit messed up. I mean, basically, it shuts down conversation by whipping out this anti-Semitic, you know, charge. Um, so right now, I'm actually thrilled that this resolution, which originally was written to condemn her, was dramatically edited due to grassroots pressure, and now it is criticizing white nationalism. It's criticizing anti-LGBTQ remarks and kind of lumping them all together under an umbrella of hate. So actually, I think Ilhan and progressives are a big winner here because we have, we have a bunch of Republicans on record going against white nationalism, you know, white supremacy, when they would refuse to do that when Donald Trump did it. Well, she, she apologized for, for the one tweet, but then a couple of days ago— and She apologized for the wording of it, not—, not right, well, right, but it's right. one thing, the anti-Semitic wording of it. And then she—but then she did another, another one— uh, that I don't even want to read. I mean, it, it was. It, it's one thing to make. I hear the argument that you are making. I think you can criticize Bibi Netanyahu for corruption and and whatever you want. But there was a. T- you would you would agree that there was a tone to her tweets, and I am not disagreeing that there's tones to the the to the president's rhetoric at all. But in this specific case, it almost felt like she kept going even after she had apologized. But she is going against the influence of one side of a debate in this country, saying that they are using you know, their, their big money influence to skew American policy towards Israel, right? Like I don't think well, – I'm not actually sure why that itself would be called anti-Semitic. The wording, basically by identifying that there is money involved in APAC strategy, which they, in, which they themselves admit. Um, somehow, because you're invoking money, that's anti-Semitic. It's, it's, it's weird. It's almost like a trope upon a trope. People, people are shutting down conversation because she's calling out big money influence in the Israel debate. It is big money influence. I'm no, a Jewish I American. Think- I'm saying it is big money influence, and it's been well documented by APAC itself that they have influence over Congress, and they move a lot of money around. But that's a – but the loyal, the saying the dual loyalty argument, all of that, that's, that, that crosses the line. Well, let, let's keep going on that. So this is, this is what crosses the line. She basically said we should have allegiance to America first and foremost. What were Republican leaders but like? No, see, wait, wait, wait. wait, wait, what, wait. What did Steve Scalise say about that? He said she should be kicked off the House Foreign Relations Committee because she is a mole for terrorists. When she's out there saying we need to be, we need to be loyal to America and they're calling her a terrorist, who's – wait, seriously. Who's the one having a foul argument? I mean that's just racist. It's anti-Muslim. I mean, if anything, she's saying America first and foremost. Colin? Well, I think the comments were absolutely anti-Semitic. They were offensive. They which were one? disgraceful. Which one? The congresswoman from Minnesota. No, which comment? The, the, the whataboutism doesn't really work. A wrong is a wrong, and you've got to call it out no, when you what's see the, it. I'm asking you to call it out. Which comment I'm not going to repeat the comments on the air. We just and by the way, the, these, aren't, the, these are not – this is not me saying it. Uh, even Rahm Emanuel, President Obama's former chief of staff, called them the, quote, ugliest Chelsea stereotypes. Clinton. 
Yeah, so this is no longer an R versus D issue, and you got to call out wrong when you call out I'm wrong. I'm asking you to call it out. And what's even more <laughs> disgraceful to me the dual loyalty. are the 2020 candidates who are defending her because they're so afraid of getting outflanked on their left. Senator Warren, Senator Sanders, Senator Harris, rather than just say, hey, this is wrong, we should condemn it, we can move on, and rather than pointing out the whataboutism and, and all that, just call, call it for what it is and then move on. Um, waves, they wash ashore a lot of various candidates. A lot of them don't have a lot of experience. The Republicans learned that in the 2010 Tea Party wave. Leadership is a hard time controlling a lot of those members. They're new to politics. They don't necessarily know the rules of the road. The same thing happened last year. A big Democratic wave washed in a lot of new uh, candidates. All right, Adam, we've we'll, we'll, we got to go to break, and then if you want to say anything else after that, yeah. All right, coming up, we, uh, we check in with Sochi Inahosa. She's communications director for the DNC. She's going to give us all of the lowdown. Everyone's running for president. How are they going to have the debates? We're going to find out how from the Democratic National Committee. Panel states got a little heated. Adam Green, co-founder of the Progressive Change Campaign Committee. Colin Reed, Republican strategist and managing director at Definers Public Affair. I'm Kevin Cirilli, you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 at 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. Still no word on Paul Manafort and what his sentence will be, but we are keeping a careful eye. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Bloomberg News Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. Meanwhile, the Democratic National Committee is busy preparing for the debates. Yes, the debates. Everyone is running for president, but we did get word today that Senator Sherrod Brown, a Democrat from Ohio, will not be joining the list. Also speculation that former Vice President Joe Biden will be making some type of a looming announcement sometime soon. Sochi Inahosa is communications director at the DNC. She joins us on the telephone line. Sochi, thank you so much for, for calling in. You guys got some uh, press today because... <laughs> Surprising no one. I mean, I wasn't surprised. Fox News will not be one of the channels that will be hosting the Democratic debates. Not your target audience, huh, Sochi? Well, I mean, I will say that they do have a very important audience. Um, they have an audience that we will need to target um, in the general election. And, and you will see, I'm sure, some candidates who will attempt to talk to their voters for the primary as well. But I think that, um, and you probably saw the reporting in The New Yorker, it really detailed an inappropriate relationship between Donald Trump and Fox News. I mean, I don't know about Bloomberg, but I'm pretty sure that Fox, that Donald Trump isn't dictating what questions you're asking. No. Um, and, you know, <laughs> and, yeah, and I think a lot of reporters would say that. But I think that um, one key point here is that it wasn't just a cozy relationship. It's just, you know, a very, very inappropriate one in terms of Trump having input on different things that they cover day to day. And so we believe that Fox is not in a position to host a fair and neutral debate for our candidates. All right. So walk us through. Uh, the uh, how the debates are going to work because I remember in the last cycle on the Republican side everyone was running. Remember, like there was like the the kids table debate I called it because if they didn't get a certain point of the polls, I don't even remember how how that worked. But but how is this going to work this time? 
Um, absolutely. So that's something that we went to school on. We looked at previous Democratic and Republican debates. We looked at debates and presidential cycles with large fields like that Republican um, cycle that you're talking about in 2016. And one thing we've learned is to make sure that we have a process that is not only fair and transparent, but that is also inclusive. And one thing that we heard from a lot of folks is that Republican debate where you had the undercard debate, the JV varsity situation, you, you candidates who were on the JV side and had to go earlier, it was detrimental to their campaigns. And they believed that that would hurt their campaign and that their candidacy was sort of done. And we don't want to do that with anyone. We know that this is a wide open field. We know we will have a lot of candidates. And that is a good thing for the party. And it is our responsibility to make sure that we that they get the most eyeballs and that we have a fair process. So we're doing 12 debates. Get ready. They start in June. Another Can't one wait. in July. We'll do, we'll do six in 2019, six in 2020. And they will be focused on the issues. They won't be focused on things like hand size, like you saw in the Republican <laughs> debate. They will be that. focused on, on hopefully the economy and climate change. And but the is, it gonna be like, is it going to be like pools of people or is it, are you going to like pick out of a hat? I mean, seriously, how, how will that be decided? So the, for the first two debates, we will be um, doing two consecutive nights on weeknight prime time. That's the first time that you have seen that happen for either party. So it is unprecedented. Okay. The fact that both NBC and CNN would give us that platform to do so. And we'll be selecting the candidates at random. There will be up to 20 for both debates, at 10 on each night. And they will, we don't want to favor any certain candidate, so they will be, we will televise or make public a random selection. And the way that you can qualify for a debate is by polling at 1% um, in three polls or a grassroots fundraising mechanism threshold that we have, this is the first time that we're doing this, and it is, you know, having 65,000 contributions in 20 states. And that's something that's new because I think as you're seeing now is that there's a lot of grassroots momentum among all the candidates. And so this is something that we are keeping our eye on and we're really excited about. All right. Sochi Anahosa, Communications Director for the DNC. Thanks for breaking it down. Appreciate you calling in. Uh, Adam Green, co-founder of the Progressive Change Campaign Committee, also closely aligned with Senator Warren. We've got literally less than a minute. But are you satisfied with how the debate process is playing out? I think the DNC gets great credit, uh, definitely for their Fox decision. Uh, Fox is more of a propaganda outlet for the right than a news outlet, so smart. And, yeah, they're trying to democratize the debates. I think it's uh, overall good news so far. All right. Adam Green, thanks for coming on. Colin Reed, thank you. Remember, you can check us out on uh, iTunes or Bloomberg.com. Tomorrow's Jobs Day and still no word on Paul Manafort's sentencing. Uh, But we will break down all of that coming up tomorrow. That's it for me. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.